Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm your host, Callum Jaspin. Today we'll be discussing the Waiting on Zuck campaign, which included independent Australian publishers blacking out their coverage for 24 hours in protest of Meta's ongoing refusal to come to the negotiating table. Later on, I'll then be chatting to the founders of Mutiny, Henry Innes and Matt Ferrugia. On the panel today, senior reporter Emma Shepherd. How are you going? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, you'll have to excuse my croaky voice, though. I'm on the back end of a pretty nasty cold. Another person who is on the back end of a cold is the reporter Anna McDonald. Hello. Yes, I love publicising my uh, health issues to the wider industry. Thank you. And welcoming the publisher and director of Broadsheet, Nick Shelton. Hey, Nick. Hey, how you doing? Very good. Thanks for joining us. So yesterday, around 30 publishers went dark for 24 hours in a campaign titled Hashtag Waiting on Zuck, created by Decade of Action as a collective freeze to fight for the future of Australian news media. The publishers are wanting CEO Mark Zuckerberg to make commercial deals that are transparent and fair in paying for quality independent journalism also encouraging the readers in the process to contact the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Nick, Broadsheet was part of this campaign. I guess to start us off, it'd be great to hear how it came about with that collective of, I think, about 30, 35 uh, publishers and the actual decision-making in stopping publishing for 24 hours. Yeah, great. So I was approached a number of months ago by um, Ebony Gaylor, who's a managing partner at Decade of Action. Uh, a handful of the small publishers had been discussing with her and Adam Ferrier, her co-partner, um, with this frustration of, we, we want to get deals done. Uh, they're not taking us seriously. And at, at, at one point, Facebook could just flat out refuse to talk to anyone else um, after doing um, you know millions of dollars worth of deals with with uh, the, the larger corporate publishers and, and then a handful of um, independents. So I was approached and I thought, yep, this sounds pretty good. I, I like the idea of engaging, you know, it, it wasn't about sort of jumping up and down and screaming and, and um, you know, demanding a, a cash out. That's sort of not what it was about, but we saw the opportunity to have a really sophisticated campaign run by Decade of Action who are really just absolute pros at this um, to draw attention to the fact that independent publishing is, uh, is actually really at risk at, at this point. Yeah. And, Anna, you, I guess, were looking at this last month uh, with the fallout of the the Facebook um, News Fund. Could you run us through some of the other names of those publishers that took part in the campaign and 24 hours on? What's the kind of feeling of the success of it? Yeah, so um, I spoke with Ebony um, and Adam, actually, uh, about the campaign and sort of how they're feeling about it um and in terms of the list it's important to note that it's a it's a growing list of publishers um ebony told me they've got uh, more and more people interested uh, reaching out some of the names obviously broadsheet is one of them uh also concrete playground urban list timeout the brag the conversation mamma mia australian jewish news australian independent media network australian property Journal and a few others as well. I won't waste everyone's time by going through all of them. Uh, Not all of them participated in the news freeze. Um, 
Some showed support via um, EDMs, social freezes, opinion pieces, things like that. Um, and then when I spoke to Ebony and Adam about the campaign, they were really pleased with how it's gone so far. You know, it's been covered quite widely. Um, as I mentioned, more publishers are joining in in the campaign. Um, they also let me know that the website for the campaign had almost 4,000 unique vi website visits in the last 24 hours. So quite pleased. And Campaign. When you say the the list is growing and that's continuing, obviously the blackout was twenty four hours, so that will be finished now. What, do you, did they give any idea or Nick if you know what that means for it actually going forward? Yeah, so I guess what what this is sort of shaped out to be. It started as a little campaign, um, but it's sort of become a bit of a movement. So it's from where I'm sitting, it's not a controversial thing to say that um, in the context of commercial deals, that Facebook should be supporting independent media and that independent media needs to be um, given the same opportunities that the other publishers are given. Otherwise, there's obviously a competitive disadvantage there. So as we as we sort of discuss it, we hear more, there's more coverage, there's conversation, there's debate. Um, it becomes clear that, well, Facebook is sort of um, been very, very blunt about their response, basically just a flat no. And, you know, that for many just refused to even answer a phone call or, or an email. Um, Google is uh, is doing better and is engaging and has assigned more deals, but there's still a long way to go, um, especially sort of from a meaningful perspective. They're, they're uh, in many cases offering very low amounts, basically just to sort of sign things off. So there's a, I think if, if I'm, you know, talking on behalf of the whole movement, which is difficult, but from my perspective, there's a question about whether um, Google are serious in their intent to, to complete meaningful deals with independent publishers. And so that's what the movement we might look at next. But then also, of course, is the reviews is about to kick off and we're waiting for the discussion paper. So there's a sort of collective and there's a single voice now that's being um, amassed uh, with this group. So we're looking at all the different options to, to, you know, on one hand, bring attention to the to the concerns that we have. Um, and, and not just, again, as 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 individual players, but as a as a concerns for the independent, independent publishing sector. At the end of the day, all we want is a diversity of news outlets and, and, a, and a thriving independent sector. Um, so we'll look at, yeah, we'll look at, look at all the aspects of this, this issue. Yeah, we did get a, uh, a response from Meta, uh, and we also got one from Google. We'll get to that in a minute, but the Meta, uh, in a quote attributed to a Meta spokesperson, it essentially said that the commercial deals are quote, just one of the ways that it's providing support to publishers and it continues to have discussions with the types of news content that can deliver best value for the publishers and also for Meta, also obviously wanting a good outcome for both. It also looked to highlight its work to date directed at the commercial deals it's made and how these its substantial investments cover the vast majority of newsrooms producing public interest journalism in Australia. They did highlight that the, the the work or some of the stuff going in so far is not strictly limited to obviously just news some of that being lifestyle food um but but also did put a emphasis on the public interest journalism um a few more players obviously aside some of the ones that we mentioned before aside from broadsheet here um what were some of them saying and also that 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 statement from google yeah, I reached out to a fair few today, but I only had responses back from uh, Bragg Media, SBS and Concrete Playground. Um, but in the responses I got, including what some of the publishers have said previously, as in particular last year, 
uh, they all kind of really resonate the same response that it makes absolutely no sense for these publishers to not be a part of the code. And, you know, considering content on these outlets appears in both Google's and Facebook's news products, um, you know, so clearly these platforms themselves see these indies as news publishers. They're not even being paid for the content, uh, yet they're appearing alongside media outlets who are receiving payment for it. Um, you know, and I think it's very clear that these publishers are frustrated. I personally think Facebook and Google have both equally spent, you know, the absolute minimum amount to keep the major media companies, the ACCC and the government at bay. But I think it'll be interesting to see how the federal election may affect the end result as well. Uh, We also had a response from Google uh, in a bit of a blanket statement uh, from Lucinda Longcroft, who is the Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy. She told Mumbrella this morning, Google has been providing financial, technical and training support to the Australian news industry for two decades. We've now signed news showcase agreements with more than 1,200 news publications around the world, including uh, with 170 large, small and independent Australian titles. So, Nick, what, what's your kind of feeling on how the the deals and the funding so far have been handed out? Do you feel it does put some of those small and medium-sized ones at a disadvantage? And now, obviously, you mentioned beforehand Facebook not really willing to come to the table again after it's kind of given out that initial rounding. They also – and when – um, the news fund was announced that the, the kind of attribution of the funding was sort of palmed off to the Walkley Foundation as well. Yeah, okay, so there's a bit there. Um, <clears throat> the reason this is so important to us is not about, as I said before, a cash grab and saying, like, oh, money's coming out, there's an ATM, let's go get some money. Um, if there was no code, that would be fine. We'd all be on an even, even playing field. The issue is that we compete day in, day in and day out with all of the publishers that have been given funding. So Nine, News, The Guardian, Schwartz, Solstice, you name it, we compete with them. We compete for uh, advertising dollars, we compete for audience, but we also compete for talent, we compete for marketing space and opportunity. These guys now have millions and millions of dollars in revenue that we don't have access to. So when I go out to hire a journalist, one of these funded publications can offer them another 10,000 or $20,000 that I'm not gonna be able to do. So we're looking at this happening already, but over the next two or three years, we're going to see the cost of operating just increase and increase and increase because there's $200 million in the system that we, we're we not a part of. So that's really our major concern. When we're in discussion with you know Google, who we you know have a dialogue with, Facebook have just completely shut up shop, um, we acknowledge that we're not looking for a cash grab here. We want representation of value. We want to provide value back to them. This is not about saying, you know, hand over cash because we deserve it. This is about saying there's a market that's been established by the, the policy in this code um, we are players in this market, so we need to get recognized um, appropriately. So that's the sort of conversation that's been happening. In terms of the uh, the Facebook News Fund and the, and the grant program, for the, the way I see that is that was just a sort of disingenuous, um, let's put a little bit of money into the market, we'll, we'll palm off responsibility to the Walkleys, and therefore we can say that we, you know, we've given it to the, the good guys, the Walkleys, and they can decide. They set the criteria, or at least they say they set the criteria, but all the people that they came to see, including Broadsheet, to say, don't worry, guys, don't worry about the news fund. We're going to support you in other ways. Example, here is um, an opportunity for you to earn up to or to, to, to be granted $320,000 across two funds. Um, you know, put in a, a good result. We had conversations with them. We would say, this is what 
projects we're going to put forward. What do you guys think? And we get feedback and, and advice. And then the list comes out and all the people who are really fed at fighting for these deals haven't been included. So that's not to detract from the, the, the wonderful publishers and, and journalists that have been supported through the Walkley um, uh, Fund and, and the Facebook News Fund. They're all worthy, but it doesn't mean that they've satisfied the requirement to, uh, to uh, negotiate commercial deals with independent publishers. So do you think that's really the, the issue here is it's kind of being almost misconstrued about who is entitled to funding because, you know, another publisher put it to me that some of the participants or some of those that are part of the campaign maybe aren't as focused on uh, actual news than others. And I guess this argument comes back in what's a lifestyle publication, what's got a newsroom, who's investing in buying, in hiring journalists. So, what you, But essentially they're all part of the same industry. You're saying that that doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. There's got to be a line drawn somewhere. Um, the, the code uh, has a definition of public interest journalism and that was for ACMA to um, assess. So there is an ACMA register that has a list of, of the publishers that do meet, uh, that have applied for that that code or that um, registration and have been um, deemed eligible, broadsheets included on that. Um, because the code hasn't designated either of the platforms, the platforms are now in a position to choose who they think are public interest journalism, depending on whatever they define. And they haven't, they haven't publicly announced what their definition is or what their criteria is, but they've just said, you know, this is who we're dealing with. This is who we're not dealing with. So we're now in a spot where Facebook and Google are picking the winners and losers of the Australian media scape, which I think is a really concerning thing. From our perspective, we hire, uh, we've got about 27 full-time journalists. They're all fully qualified, fully educated. Our, our editorial director has a double masters um, from Columbia Journalism School. Uh, we have every piece of content gets sub-edited. We have a journalistic rigor across everything we publish. We are adamant that what we do is public interest. We write about communities and culture and business and um, issues of gender and race, um, public policy, infrastructure. You know, we are we are public interest journalism. Um, but Facebook or Google don't even have to respond to that, you know, position. They just say, no, nah, sorry, and they close the door. So we're hoping that uh, across the review of the next 12 months um, or the next number of months, six months perhaps, um, the government and the policymakers will, you know, will understand that we need to support public interest journalism um, in its independent forms and its big forms. Uh, we are aware of a few publishers that chose to bite their tongues in this in instance and not publicly take part in the campaign because they are, in in some cases, still in the midst of applying for the Facebook News Index. What, what was the kind of have you? Are there any that you've spoken to, and you know? What is the kind of wider industry feeling that obviously they that this does illustrate the sort of stranglehold that it does have on potentially some smaller publishers that they are so reliant on that funding from Facebook and they really don't want to rock the boat too much? Well, I think that's right. And that's that's everything you've just said demonstrates the outsized power that Facebook has in this market. And in fact, all markets they operate in really. Um, and that they've been using that power to grab all the advertising uh, revenue they possibly can to the point where... Um, the ACCC, I think, estimated that 80% of all advertising dollars spent in digital um, land in either Facebook or Google's businesses. That makes it really, really tough. Um, and they have this huge amount of power. Some publishers are prepared to stand up and say, we've got to make this right. Other publishers are saying, and, and it's their prerogative to do so, that you know they've got too much power and we're worried about retribution. 
But I think that's exactly what this code was trying to address, um, and rightfully so. Coming up next, I'll be chatting to Mutiny's Matt Ferrugia and Henry Innes. Matt Ferrugia and Henry Innes, founders and managing partners of Mutiny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Good day. Welcoming in from both Melbourne and Sydney. So you launched in 2018 as originally a marketing consultancy, but have since transitioned, as I understand it, more to a technology company with the launch of Warchest in 2019. You're very clear that this is not an agency, so I guess a good place to start would be, I guess, explaining exactly what Mutiny and Warchest does. Well, the the space that we have defined is that largely businesses spend a lot of money today and probably the bulk of um, revenue spent in analytics today is around your website. And it's probably pretty fair to say that there'd be some optimization in Facebook ads and things like that. But for the bulk of it, it's around your website, around your CRM list and what data you can connect around those two things. Um, The reality of modern marketing and also most CMOs is that the bulk of their spend is not around a website. It's around media and and advertising that gets put in front of people. So our job and our vision has always been to build a marketing investment analytics platform that caters for that need and analyzes what is the single largest line item for both uh the, the chief marketing officer the, and, and their marketing department, but also the line item that affects creative agencies and media agencies the most as well. So analytics for that radically affects three industries in a far more fundamental and, and also, you know, on a first principles dynamic way um, than, than any, other ca- any other space. Um, having worked across with Matt in a range of, kind of different marketing environments, um, we've seen cost pressures. We've seen the cost pressures that are rife in the industry. We've seen the challenges rife in the industry around is what we're doing really working? Is advertising really valuable? The constant questions that you have when you are publicly traded on the share market with cost pressures. And so the reality of it was we felt that there needed to be an analytics platform in that space. So, Matt, was this – you obviously worked together at um, VML, YNR. Was this something that you had discussed at the time that was part of an ongoing frustration? You, you thought initially, let's start up this company, and then did, did, did Warchest come later on, or how did that kind of play out? Jasper, you're absolutely right. This was, this was something that uh, – there was a shared frustration Henry and I had back when we were, we were working together – on one hand, I was speaking to a lot of our clients back then who were spending some big money, you know, in, in lots of different channels, in lots of different ways. And what, what I realised is that I was having a, a – there was a common thread in conversations with a lot of marketers around what am I going to get in return for spending this money with you, Matt, and in these channels? And also, where should we invest this money? How do we know where to invest this? And what I quickly realised was that there was no – there was no single unified view that could help these marketers decide on that. And, you know, and I think, you know, working with Henry, you know, we, we shared that, um, we were discussing that problem and we became a bit obsessed about it and thought, 
know, as we fleshed it out and in the back, you know, the, 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 as the, um, you know, the, the age-old uh, conversation goes in startups, it was on the back of a napkin. Henry's like, I can actually, I, can, I know how to build this, you know, yeah. and I think that's what we set out to do. So the, the ambition and vision for Mutiny was always to build war chest, you know, and, and I might just add, like, you know, back, back in those early dates, you know, when, when there wasn't, um, I mean, look, there, there's, still, there's still very few solutions out there, but war chest is that unified view to help marketers make those decisions. But I remember, you know, from my experience back when, you know, in the mid-2000s when you needed to make decisions around, you know, uh, your websites and which digital banners to do, and this is pre-Google Analytics, you know, to, to, to look at insights and data to help you make those decisions, you had to trawl through server logs to extract that and piece it all together to make a decision. And then Google Analytics came along and said, ta-da, Everyone can actually insert these tags and manage, ma- ma- you know, measure your digital properties in one single view, and it it transformed, you know, uh, not just digital marketing, but it just opened up the the possibilities and and the growth opportunities in advertising, broadly speaking. So, you know, fast track, uh, you know, <laughs> fast track fifteen years, and here we are with our version of Google Analytics, but for yeah. marketing investment. So I guess, I mean, as far as I understand it, you're both self-taught coders. Is that right? I very much am a self-taught coder. A number of my engineers would call me a very bad coder as well, um, <laughs> depending on who you talk to. Yeah. But, my, 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 sorry, sorry, Jasmine. No, go, get, go ahead. Yeah, my, my, coding, um, my coding ability, it's fair to say, it's fairly outdated these days. But like, fortunately, we... Um, We've got an incredibly talented team, you know, and, and Henry leads the engineering team as well. And you know, they, um, you know, yeah, they, they can they can code. But my, I've, I've, it's fair to say I've hung up my coding my coding boots. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 from a kind of outside perspective, it seems like this is something. These kind of questions that agencies should be offering their marketers. Do you think? What, what do you think it is about? I guess the, the the advertising industry more generally that it has lacked the solution to, as you say, one of these age old problems for marketers. Well, it's the question becomes: Are you in execution or are you in analysis? Because you can't execute and and analyze and mark and and mark the execution in, in the same way. I don't want to use the analogy of marking the marking your homework but it's the same as a financial audit right you know a financial audit is not done by an internal accounting team it's generally done by an external practice deloitte pwc those sorts of businesses the same dynamic probably and arguably does does exist if you want to build confidence in the solution agencies are brilliant at rolling out campaigns i mean you know i would say that we've worked with a number of agencies who are probably delivering far higher returns or contributing far more to the bottom line than organizations even thought. Um, mm. But 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 it's fair to say that if that organization had come back themselves and said, hey, we're returning six, seven times for every dollar we put in for you, I suspect it would have been uh, pull the other one, guys, even if it were true. When we come in, we don't have any alignments uh, to anybody but um, – but Matt and myself, really, and uh, and as a result, what tends to happen is if we're the only interest we have is in the result, and so because we don't 
because we are focused on just that part of the problem and just that analytics platform, uh, that allows us to have a degree of confidence. And it also allows, you know, the businesses that are doing phenomenal jobs, and there are lots of them in the agency market, um, it allows them to really uh, be able to stand by those results more confidently. I think it's a very difficult thing to confuse those roles. Um, and I think agencies are often confusing do I want to do I want to actually report back on what worked versus what didn't versus do I want to use data to improve my execution? And they're two fundamentally different things. When we talk about data-driven marketing, one is about am I making the best decision or, and were the, deci- were the decisions I, I made, did the, did the decisions I made pay off versus the other is how can I use data to improve my next decision? And, of course, I think it's, I think, you know, in many cases, we, we just can't confuse the roles of, you know, using data well in execution versus generating data for analysis. And I guess how's that going in terms of the, the agencies you are partnering with? Are you are you finding that it is largely the ones that you say you mentioned they are doing very well and, and delivering great results for their clients that are wanting to work with you or are there, are there, are there others that maybe aren't? delivering as well as they would like to be who are coming to you in order to improve their services? I don't think any agency wants to do a bad job. I mean, I genuinely think that most people want to do a really good job for their for their, for their client base and for their customers, and I think you can see that. I mean, when we enter a process, I don't think there is – there's not many agencies that don't lean into the process and into the process of training and in using a tool and things like that. Matt, you can probably speak to that a lot better than I can. Though. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we when we talk about measurement tools and analytics platforms like ours, a lot of the time, you know, the, the, the most common use case that the audience thinks of is where do we how, where do we cut money from? You know, how do we how do we um you know you know identify the poor performing? Like well that's a that's a capability, but more often than not, what we see with agencies using the platform is is they've got a all of a sudden they have a capability and a utility that is able to measure the impact that their work is having, which is an incredible thing. Like I remember over the years, like we would we would generate, you know, hundreds and if not thousands of campaigns, but measuring what attributed to a to success is an incredibly difficult and complex thing to prove. And there's science and methodologies that you can apply to achieve that. But we're seeing agencies use our platform to really not just justify, but but you know, validate and and prove the impact that their work is having, and also you know open up new dialogue and new trusted partnerships with their with their clients through our platform. You know, so there's we're seeing a lot of that a lot of that happen. You know, and if you look at our our platform sits in the space of a capability that we embed, similar to. You know, like I mentioned earlier, when Google Analytics would would embed analytics in teams and then they would train people how to use it and then they would you would get teams of people using it, the brands and their agencies. You know, so in a similar way where we, we embed the solution and we we um, you know we support agencies who use the platform uh, for their for their clients and they they in turn look at it and go, well, here is a unbiased you know platform called Warchest that we are. We are extracting these results on very tried and tested, proven methodologies that have been around for a long time. But we're doing it, we're doing it at speed and and with a high level of accuracy. 
And that's what we're seeing. And I guess how how is that tracking overall? You you seeing a kind of exponential growth in terms of the clients that you're, I guess, working with? I know uh, a while back, Henry, you mentioned you'd be looking to be overseeing around a billion dollars by July, I think, twenty twenty two this year. Are you kind of on target for for that kind of estimation? I so. Yeah, I think so. I'd say so. I think um, I think you know. The interesting thing for us is also analysing decisions that aren't or aren't conventionally within the um, advertising sphere. So I would just say that in that pool, which is why we may exceed it a bit quicker than we thought, in that pool we're often including pricing, discounts, price movements, all of those sorts of things. So that certainly widens the scope of how we've started to model a lot more. So... And by way of example, you can you can quite clearly see that certain channels, particularly bottom of funnel channels, lack effectiveness if they don't have certain levels of price competitiveness, which makes sense, right? You know, there are certain channels and certain categories that are highly price reliant, and if you're not if you're not owning price within those areas, if you don't have a price point that is far better than the consumers, there's no point advertising there because you just don't you just won't have that. Co- Competitive, competitive edge regardless. Um, so I think certainly we should get there fairly fairly fast, I'd say, maybe even before, I'd say, uh, that yeah. June, July period. But um, and, the, and there's a lot of the, – the interesting thing is there's a lot of volume associated with that as well. So you can start to see and aggregate very interesting patterns on effectiveness. I know you initially started by, I guess, focusing on a few um, specific categories. Has it sort of developed over time and you've expanded out the service to, I guess, be a lot more flexible now, Matt? Yeah, what we're finding is, you know, there are there are lots of, there's obviously common threads across all marketers. Now, there, there are common objectives. There, is, there are things like brand, understanding brand equity over time, understanding the impact of know marketing in terms of whether it be visitations but obviously what what we're noticing is uh, what we've done is our platform is configurable so it actually suits the specific needs of different categories so we have we're noticing um you know we have lots of interest in you know categories that are highly highly frequent in marketing and also have highly accountable cultures um, and also have an ambition to build capability internally so that generally lends itself towards the large advertisers in, in, for example, banking and finance, retail, consumer electronics, FMCGs, and the list goes on and the like. But what we're, what we're noticing is, um, yeah, so we, 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 we are catering for lots of different categories now by, by means of configuring the platform to suit those objectives. So, you know, for example, in the financial services, it's, you know, with those longer, longer sales lead processes, um, you know, it's things like, you know, uh, the volume of inquiries generated from your marketing campaigns, the volume of applications that are generated, um, whereas your, 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 your retail focus and FMCG, CPG and the like are all about volume and sales, etc. So we're able to model all of those things um, and go to a very, very deep level of granularity as well. And and last year, uh, I know Hen- uh, Henry, you're based largely in Sydney, but you spend your time between both Melbourne and Sydney. And Matt, you're down here in Melbourne. You, you opened up that Sydney office last year. 
Uh, I know you kind of briefly mentioned that plans for international were kind of, I guess, hindered a little bit by COVID. Are there any imminent plans to expand further on the horizon? Well, I think uh, we probably need to hold off on what we say there because, well, we'll get in trouble from somebody. Um, but, but, but I think, you know, broadly speaking, the route that we need to follow is similar to most technology companies. And I'll explain that route uh, through five stages from a product perspective. Um, and Matt, you may not love me saying this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, so so I, I think step one for us is to build an exceptionally robust product where we can see really high usage and we can actually see that people can get the so what's out of the platform really, really rapidly. Um, so moving that position to very much focusing on are we embedding usage as quickly as possible? How quickly can people pick up and intuitively get the platform really being as magical and easy to use as something like Google Analytics, but even probably further than that, and we've got big, big, bigger ambitions to go simpler than Google Analytics does. Um, the second kind of stage with that is then proving out, you know, a, a, a more of a bottom-up style, style SaaS model. So one of the things that we talk about a lot internally is, well, how do we make the entry point as easy as possible for agencies, their customers, um, you know, direct-to-customer models and things like that so that this type of tooling can be accessible from anywhere. And then the third kind of component to that is then making the ability for somebody to collect data really easily, um, uh, it, it re really easy off the back of that. Those components mean that your cost to scale is rapidly diminished. So that's why those elements are really important to get right. It's also just like a product market fit thing, right? Like you, you want to actually really get your usage so good because that really proves that people just love the platform. Like right now we're probably at weekly, maybe some users daily, um, excluding weekends, obviously. Um, but we'd love that to be quite consistently once every two to three days um, for, for most users so that we find ways to actually add value to that ecosystem without giving too much away about what a product roadmap is. That's how we think about the, the issue. So I think geography for us is, is important, but geography is also a function of having a wonderful product, right? And, um, and so I think as a SaaS business, we kind of look at business, uh, we look more to how Canva and those sorts of businesses have expanded their geographic footprint as our model for doing that rather than necessarily having to open an office uh, yeah. uh, within, you know, every city that we need to go to. So I don't think geography is going to be defined by when we open an office. It's going to be defined by how do we make our product as accessible and as easy to use and as self-service to use so that anyone in the globe can pick it up and use it. We'll benchmark ourselves more against that kind of model than a boots on the ground kind of model. And then once you've got that product at the point that you'd like it to be, are there, I guess, down the road, then plans to maybe list or float? <laughs> I enjoy the thing so much, Callum, that I don't even think I could tell you what an exit looks like. Um, if you'd asked me probably three to four years ago, Matt may have a different view. If you'd asked me three to four years ago, I probably would have told you, let's just build build to a great 
great ARR and exit or IPO or float and buy other businesses and things like that. And I would have said all the ambitious things that a mid-20s who doesn't know that much likes to say um, versus <laughs> today. I mean, I enjoy the thing so much. Matt knows I'm obsessed with the thing. I'm obsessed with the product. So for me, it's 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 honestly like I mean, Sir Martin Sorrell once said that having a business is the, is is like having a, a child, and um, I really deeply understand that. Like it's for me, I, I I couldn't see myself doing anything else. I just really couldn't. I don't think I emotionally could do it. There's too much potential to realise in the platform as well, Cal. I might, like, if I, what, what gets me excited is you look at the roadmap that Henry's alluding to, which we, we, can't, we can't reveal too much, but, you know, the conversations that we have with our customers and then the problems that we're seeing arise and opportunities in this space that we know we can, we can, we can, we can solve by evolving our platform and releasing new, new features and functions is so bloody exciting, you know, so... You know, Imagine I think if every agency could tell the story of financial contribution to the bottom line. Imagine if every marketer could say that every time you cut my budget, you're cutting revenue. Like, imagine if we change the industry to that. Like, screw any talks of exits, right? Imagine if we think about how do we fundamentally have analytics to change the entire industry and, and get our industry on the front foot of what we do, which is we grow businesses. We're in the business of growing businesses. Like that is what marketers do and what we should be proud of. And too often we're getting buffeted by all these things saying, you guys are spending too much and blah, 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 blah. Without marketing, there's no bloody revenue. So, I mean, good luck. Like, so to my mind, like if we can build a platform that helps change that at scale and at massive scale, right, that to me is like, how do you actually help the industry? How do you transform the industry? How do you how do you rethink the structural paradigm that the industry is currently in? And the answer there is analytics, because analytics is what will fundamentally allow us to get on the front foot and say, guys, we make everybody else money. Like, and if that is the single thing that we do with this business, that's the single thing I freaking die in a coffin trying to do. That is that is what I want to do. Or a boat, Henry. Or a boat. Or spearfishing <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, so Anything Carl, to look, add to that, Matt? <laughs> yeah, look, you know, it, it's what Henry's just saying there. I mean, if you if you walk you walk through mutiny, if you sit in any you know any of our team meetings with all our staff around the country, everyone everyone has that belief. Everyone genuinely believes in that vision. Like you know, there is a there's a there's a there's a vision and a purpose that drives mutiny. That we've got a we've got a long way to go and a big job to do. We're not just building a better mousetrap. We're transforming an industry. You know, and you know, to summarise, you know, what Henry's saying, it's like our, it's our ambition and our, our life work to shift marketing to being managed from a cost centre, from marketing to be managed as an investment, you know, and if we can, and we're, and we're doing that with some, some huge brands um, already. And, but we do want to take that and scale it out and make it accessible for, for many, many more brands um, around, around the globe eventually. But, you know, I think for now we've got, We've got a we've got a big job to do. Sorry, this is a long response to your question. But, you know, our point is, you know, Henry and I aren't even thinking about an exit at this stage. Yeah. We've got we've got too much work to do, you know, and it's it's too exciting. And there's such a great energy at Mutiny to be to be to be doing it and working with some incredible minds um, in our business that we're so so fortunate to have part of this journey. Mm-hmm.
And I guess just on a kind of final note, you recently partnered up with um, the Independent Media Associations of uh, Agencies of Australia, should I say, IMAA. Are there any particular success stories that you're seeing at the moment in the agency from, I guess, an external view? Uh, and do you think independents are kind of taking up a bigger slice of the pie in Australia? They, they, they are. Yes, look, to answer your question in two part, I think, um, I mean, what, what we're seeing in, in the industry around, you know, what, what, I mean, we work with lots of agencies, you know, all different sizes and scales. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we share a lot of, of tools with our, our, our customers, agencies, agency partners, and we, we give them a lot of thought leadership and we, we, you know, we, we share a lot of tools in the sense of how do they prepare you know, how do they prepare um, getting their data ready uh, for progressive dynamic MMM, you know? And in doing that, we've seen some, we've got, there's, there's so many success stories that we've seen agencies really jump all over it and go, well, if this gets us to a position of building more trusted relationships with our clients, if this helps us build better transparency and, 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 and build a perception of value between us and our clients, and we're, we're all over this. And that's how we support them to do that. On the latter, as in partnering with the um, IMAA, so, yeah, we're working with Sam Buchanan, and we, we saw that a lot, of our, a lot of our customers were working with indie agencies. And I think, you know, the indie agencies in Australia in particular, I mean, they're, they're, they're growing at a rate as in the scale of, of clients that they are serving. And I think a lot of them are, um, or many of them, you know, no, they want to do work in this space around, you know, econometrics and marketing investment analytics, but they don't have the resources or the access or the deep pockets as such to their their their, their larger holding company counterparts. So, you know, rather than going out and hiring ten data scientists, they'll come to us and yeah. we'll provide them with some solutions and 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 um and options because we do share a lot of customers with that network, mm-hmm. and we're seeing them. We're seeing some incredible capabilities that are being built in those independent agencies i mean i mean i have a little bit of a view as to indie agency the indie versus hold co dynamic that you're i think you're basically alluding to um i think you know the big challenge with indie hold co dynamics is they're effectively cyclical right so there are periods when hold co's have built up consolidated balance sheets and so they're able to acquire lots of businesses and bring a lot of capability together quickly, and then that creates a debt a, a debt cycle, which then ultimately means that you know lots of those really talented people leave and things like that. They start, you know, they start agencies and things like that because things are on on the up. You know, you've got to tighten the belts in a in a in a down debt cycle and things like that, and then and then they 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 kind of come back up. Uh, you know, that cycle reverses. So. I think that, you know, obviously most holding companies are coming through periods where they have gone through debt cycles. And I think that's a macroeconomic driver as to why the indie sector is really thriving, um, particularly in Australia, but probably globally as well. Um, will that and that cycle eventually swing back, swing back the other way? I don't think it's a question of individual groups. There's some wonderfully talented agencies everywhere and there's always going to be wonderfully talented in independents but i i think the reason that you get more or less uh indies at any one given time isn't due to individual factors i think it's due to structural and debt dynamics within the market yeah.
Well, Matt and Henry, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Love, love the chat. And that's it for another week of the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a rating if you can and if you liked what you hear. Anna, Emma, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. See you next week.